Um, for the guys who just popped in here today, I'm going to do a real brief review of, or just set the context for Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. And the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish people who had left the temple worship sacrificial system and were following Jesus and they had formed a faith community in and around Rome about 60 to 70 AD. Now this faith community had people in it that were posers. In other words, they had also left temple worship and were hanging around these true believers who had been regenerated, the Holy Spirit had come into their heart, had changed them from the inside out. But the second group who were posers that were hanging around them only intellectually knew about God. They didn't really know Him. We have a lot of people like that in our culture. A lot of people in the church who know about Jesus, they know about God, but they don't know Him. And that second group is, is in that faith community and it's almost as if because they affirm the message, because they're around people that actually have been transformed, they're in. But that doesn't make you in. The only way to be in is if the Holy Spirit gives you a regenerated heart and the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And there's a third group in that faith community that's still trying to figure it out. So the book of Hebrews is a letter written to that faith community to, to warn them, primarily groups two and three, to warn them, get all in with Jesus. Be all in with Him. The first group the warnings apply to, principally, but you can't lose your salvation. Once you're in the family of God, Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And people go, yeah, but what about people who profess but then they leave? 1 John 2 says that they left because they were never part of us. They were posers. And so this letter was written and he starts in chapter 1 and he says Jesus is supreme to everything and that flows all the way through the whole letter, all 13 chapters. Jesus is supreme. He's supreme to Moses, supreme to angels, supreme to the temple worship, the old covenant. He's supreme to everything. And the first warning is in chapter 2 where he says, don't drift from that message that Jesus is supreme. He's the Gospel. He is the good news. He is the King. And He's the Messiah. Chapter 3, the second warning says, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. And he hearkens back to Psalm 95. He quotes Psalm 95, which is a commentary on Exodus 17 and onward where the children of Israel left Egypt and all they did was complain about how God wasn't with them because they didn't have the right food that they wanted because they didn't think they had water because they thought they were going to die and so they said is God really with us does he care you ever feel like that You've seen God do all these things, but then when things go bad, you start to question. That's what they did. And they did it over and over, and they got hard-hearted. And so in Psalm, the psalmist says, don't harden your heart. The writer to the Hebrews is telling them, don't harden your heart. He's warning that second group. He says, don't harden your heart. Receive the message. And then the third warning is in chapter 5 and 6, where he says, don't waver back and forth between the old sacrificial system and Jesus. For us... None of us in here want to go sacrifice a lamb. We don't buy into that old system. But 
We do buy into the world system. Because both the world system and their old system, had their old system really was corrupted because a sacrificial system was never meant to be a works-based system. It was always by grace through faith. And it was faith that followed God's commands, but they corrupted it and made it a work, earning God's favor. And we do the same thing today. I know lots of people that teach, well, you have to trust that Jesus died on the cross, but you better live a good life. Because if you don't live a good life, He's not going to accept you. No. It's not that He won't accept you. He accepts you not because of what you do. He accepts you because of what Jesus did. Amen. But, if you receive what Jesus did, and it's not just a mental intellectual ascent, it's going to change your life. Absolutely. Absolutely will change your life. So he gives them the third warning, and we saw in chapter 10, two weeks ago, his fourth warning in chapter 10 is don't be an apostate. Don't be a poser. Don't be somebody who knows the truth and rejects. There's two ways to reject the truth. One is outright, and one is posing saying you do believe when it's only an intellectual assent. And that was the fourth warning. Last week, we saw him go from chapter 10 into this great hall of fame of faith in chapter 11, and he basically laid out the motivation for our faith, the demonstration of our faith, the process or journey of our faith, and it started in verse 1, 1 2, and 3 with the author of our faith, who is God Himself. See, faith itself is a gift from God. It's not something you can just say, I'm going to have faith. It's a gift. And we saw that. We saw in verses 1-4, through He said, listen, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I asked the question, are we walking by sight or by faith? Where in your life are you really following God that requires faith? Most of us tend to walk in our life where we walk and are able to control our situation. If, if you know, I ask you, Chuck, let's go on a mission trip. I can't. I, got, I don't have the money. First question is, who does have the money? God does. So who am I trusting? Am I trusting in myself and my bank account or am I trusting in God? The, the, the one who has everything. Chuck, Let's go on a mission trip, man. I, I got this opportunity over in India. I can't. I can't get off work. Really? Who controls your boss? God. You see, most of the time we tend to operate by sight and what we see and what we think instead of asking God to change the hearts of people or the circumstances. And, and he's saying faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he uses Abel as an example. And what he did with Abel is he gives us this example of Abel bringing the sacrifice that God required. Cain didn't. Cain brought work from the ground. Abel brought an animal because that's what God has prescribed. And far too often, you and I bring God what we think is best instead of what He's prescribed. You know how I know that? Because 90% of the men in evangelical churches read this less than one hour a year. So how do you know what God prescribes if you don't read His Word? You can't. You can't. 
And we've got every excuse to book. You know, Derek, you know you and I have been talking some about politics. I just, you know what I've, I've started saying to guys who are complaining to me about one thing or another? I said, don't talk to me until you spend at least five minutes in the Word for every minute you sp- spend listening to radio or TV. Because your opinion is being shaped more by talking heads than the one true living God. And it's easy to fall into that trap. But he says, you don't bring me what you think, you bring me what I require. And that was the point of Abel. Abel brought what God required. We don't know much about him except he did what God asked him to do. And then he goes into the motivation for our faith and it's to know him, not just to know about him. And he uses Enoch. It says a guy who walked with God. And then he goes into the demonstration of our faith with Noah. And Noah, we know Noah in the flood, but you know what it says about Noah? It says Noah walked with God. You know whose Noah's father was? Lamech. His grandfather, Methuselah. Great-grandfather, Enoch. Do you think that Enoch didn't pass down the walking with God thing to Noah? Of course he did. Of course he did. Because God was involved in it all. And that's what the motivation for our faith is, is to know Him. And then as we know Him, we're going to demonstrate this faith to a pagan world just like Noah did. It just looks different for us. For Chuck, it's driving around town talking to people about oil. But as he goes around, when that guy cuts him off in traffic, instead of flipping him off, he just says, Okay, sorry. You do that, right? Isn't that what you do? (laughs) See, our demonstration is to put our faith in the one true living God on display to a pagan world. If you were an evaluator and you were evaluating the church in America at doing that, where would it be on a scale of 1 to 10 right? How good of a job have we done putting faith in the one true living God on display to the pagan world around us? It's a question we've got to wrestle with. And then he goes into Abraham and he shows us the journey of faith. He talks about being called. Abraham was called. Abraham didn't do anything worthy to be called. He was just called. God said, you, Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldeans. I want you to leave there and... Follow me. Go to a land where you don't even know where you're going. You're not going to build a permanent structure. You're going to stay in tents, but you're going to trust me. Now, Abraham didn't start off doing great. You know why? Because he was lying to protect himself. That doesn't show a lot of faith. He goes in this one city, and his wife was beautiful, and he says, listen, if they ask you, you're my sister. Because if you tell them you're my wife, they're going to kill me to get to you so they can have you. He was prophesying. Do me out of the way. So he failed that test. But a test, what God does is he calls us, then he tests us, but then ultimately we will see his power lived out in our life. And that's what happened with Abraham. He eventually brought him a son at the ripe old age of 100. Almost as old as you, George. He was close. He had a child at a hundred, the child of promise. 
in verse 16 of chapter 11, he says, our purpose is to put him on display and to reveal that we are a people of the one true living God. That, that Abraham, wherever he went, he was to be known as the people of the one true living God. And I asked the question last week, if you were arrested and put on trial and there were 12 people here and we brought people that were from your family and your relationships at work, would there be enough evidence to convince this jury over here that you are a person that's part of the family of the one true living God by what you do in your life? That's a very sobering and haunting question. It's very sobering. Sometimes, you know, I think people would know me more for other things instead of that. And it's, it's sobering. And so as we go into this text today in verses 17 through 29, we pick up where we left off. So remember, the author of our faith is God. He creates, it's, it's his given as a gift. We don't earn it or create it. And when we saw the, the uh, motivation of our faith is to be in relationship with him intimately, is to know him, not just know about him. And then we saw the demonstration of our faith is to put God on display to a, uh, a pagan world around us, faith in the one true living God. And we saw the process of our faith with Abraham last week where we, he's called, we see him tested, we see the power of God demonstrated in his life, and ultimately the purpose is revealed that he's part of that family. And today in this text today, we're going to see the security of our faith. The security of our faith. We all want security, don't we? Right. Don't we? I mean, that's why security systems are all over the place. Everybody likes security. You know, you got security systems. We try to do everything we can to keep our world secure. Our ultimate security is in God, and that's what he's going to show that here in this verse 17 uh, all the way down through uh, 19 or 22, I'm sorry. But then, and he's going to show us the supremacy of faith by demonstrating it in the life of Moses. And by the supremacy of our faith, it's the value of our faith in the one true living God compared to everything else on the face of the earth. And we see in Moses' life that that supremacy is demonstrated in the choices he makes. So, when given the choice between the one true living God and the world around us, what do we choose? What do you choose? The one true living God. Not, not, what you, not the ideology. I mean, not just the ideal. Not what somebody wants to hear. What do you choose day to day? Practically lived out. Do we choose the one true living God? Or do we choose status? Do we choose purity? Or do we choose pleasures? Do we choose um, possessions or we, do we choose perspective, his perspective? You see, Moses made a choice with all these and that story is told through the writer to this group of people to say, don't go back to the old system. 
Look at our history of faith. Look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Look at these people. We have such a rich history of faith in the one true living God. Don't stay a poser. Don't reject. Come on in. Be all in with Jesus. That's what he's trying to tell them. So let's read the text and we're going to come back and look at the security of our faith and also the supremacy of our faith. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 17. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac involved future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Amen. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, and he sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. May God bless the reading of his word. God revealed in these first few verses as he he picks up again with Abraham the security of our faith. And remember, he's back in Genesis. He started in Genesis with Abel, really the creation, went through Abel, went through Enoch, went through Noah, and now, and then Abraham, and now he's picking up on the promise that was made to Abraham, and he reveals... The security of our faith is what? That the one true living God is able. Enough said. The one true living God is able to do anything, anytime, anywhere. Do we have faith in that? Do we believe that? You see, remember the Greek word belief that I said last week is the word pistis, which means a belief that produces an action. It's not just a mental assent as, yeah, that's a nice thought. Yeah, I kind of believe it. No, it's a conviction of something not seen that our God is able at any time to do what He wants to do and for people who are part of that family to trust in Him whether He does it or not. 
There's a great story in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 3 of three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are their Hebrew names, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. And these three men were told to bow down and worship an idol. And they said, we will not. And the king said, well, I'm going to throw you in a fire pit. and You're going to die if you don't do it. And they said, listen to us, O King Nebuchadnezzar. They said, our God will deliver us. Now, it's easy for us to think about saying that where we're sitting right here, but I want you to imagine for a second being kidnapped when you're over in the Middle East on a trip with your family, and you're in front of a a mullah, and he sits there and says, we're going to cut your head off if you don't bow down to Allah. It's a whole lot different thing to say it then than it is to say it in this classroom. It's a whole lot different thing to say it when they were in front of Nebuchadnezzar, who was an egomaniac, who was the most powerful person in the world at that time, who said, I'm going to kill you if you don't bow down and worship. And they said, you know what? Even if our God doesn't deliver us, we'll never bow down. Amen. Why? They believed that their God was able to do anything at any time, but they also trusted that if He didn't do what they wanted to do, it was what He wanted to do. See, far too many of us believe, oh, God's able to do anything, but we get mad when He doesn't do what we want Him to do. The security of our faith is in the object of our faith, and it's the one true living God. Back in Genesis 22, and because of time, we're not going to read the whole section. But if you go there and read about what it's saying there about Abraham, God told Abraham after he had this son that took so long to come, and he was going to be the one that would provide as many descendants. It was on as sand on the seashore, as many stars are in the sky. And he says, I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him. Now, that was wrong on a lot of levels, just on a human perspective. One, the Jewish people didn't sacrifice humans. They weren't supposed to. That's called murder. So it's wrong on that level. Second, how in the world is he going to have all these descendants if he kills the only son that he's got? But you know what Abraham believed? He said, you know what? God's able to raise him. And he's tested me before. I'm not going to fail this test. So he told his son, come on. He got a couple of servants. And then he told his servants to wait at the base because he knew they probably wouldn't like what was going to happen. And they're going up and the son says, Dad, um, got the wood and stuff, but we don't have the animal. And he goes, it's okay, son. God will provide. He gets up there, and at some point, he wrapped him up in rope, raised his hand, and the angel stops him. He says, nope. Now I know you fear me. Now, did God need to see Moses do that to know? Or did God already know? That was for, I mean, not Moses, Abraham. That was for Abraham. That wasn't for God. That was for Abraham to know how much he could trust the one true living God. Because once God tests you and you go through that test, your faith is strengthened. 
It was strengthened and encouraged. The one true living God can do anything, and he demonstrates that in Abraham and Isaac. But then he goes into Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph back in verses 20 to 22, and he shows us not only that the one true living God can do anything, but the one true living God keeps his promises. I want you to think about the world at that time, what was going on. Jacob, Isaac, they lived in, in around Hittites. They lived around Canaanites. There were people, the world was not a safe place back then. They weren't a big people. They didn't have lots and lots of wealth. Although Abraham, was, he did have a pretty good amount of wealth. But not like the Hittites, not like the Canaanites, not like other people. But the one true living God keeps His promises. And He blessed the children after through the Father. And it's so important to understand this that when we see people, He talks about Jacob when He blessed Jacob and Esau. And, and Jacob blessed Joseph. We see the promise being fulfilled through the sons as the blessing has gone through the Father. Throughout time, the blessing has gone through the Father. Guys, that's why it's so important for you, if you are a dad, to make sure that you bless your children in the name of the Most High God. The, the blessing goes down through the Father. As he prays over his children, you see that clearly in this text. When he goes and he says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And the interesting thing about Esau is Esau was not even part of Israel. He wasn't. Esau was the Edomites. That's where Herod came from. One of the most wicked rulers of that time. But yet he still blessed him. I'm sure he still tried to point him to the one true living God. But Esau was bent toward what? His own cravings. So much so that he gave up his birthright. And you go, well, wait a minute. Jacob lied. Jacob lied, right? But the, you know what the difference between Jacob and Esau was? Jacob repented and persevered. The mark of a true follower of the one true living God is always perseverance. It's perseverance Amen. and repentance. Right. And Jacob humbled. He was humbled. And remember how he responded to his, his brother when he came back? He fell on his face in front of me and he, he, he said, maybe God will spare us. At some point, there was a shift that took place in Jacob's life, and he wanted his kids to know that. Even though he was not perfect, he believed in the one true living God. And he blessed his children, and he was so obedient that when Joseph, he met his son Joseph in Egypt, and we don't have time to go into all that, but Joseph brought his kids to him, and he was blessing Joseph's kids. These are his grandkids. And he said, Manasseh and Ephraim are going to be like my children. And he went to bless them and he did this. Joseph put his hands like this, older, younger. And Joseph goes, I mean, Jacob goes, nope, I'm doing it like this. And he goes, no, 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 
My father, that's not right. And he goes, no, this is right. This is what God wants. Sometimes as a parent, you have to do things that your kids don't like, even when they're adults. And if you remember, at that point, Joseph was the number two guy in all of Egypt. He wasn't a 15-year-old. And his dad did something that Joseph didn't like at all, but he had to do it because that's what God wanted. And there are going to be things in your life that you may have to do that your kids won't like. Who are you going to choose? You're going to choose to honor God or your kids? You see, He keeps His promises. And He wants us to look to Him. Our security is in Him. It's not in us. And a lot of times we try to secure our own things and there's no security in what we provide. But there's all kinds of security in what He provides. And everything that he said came true. In fact, over in Joshua chapter 23, verse 14, it says, not one of God's promises failed. Not one of them. Amen. Not one. And then in chapter 24 of Joshua, this is years, years after Joseph, Joseph had said, remember, take my bones. When you come into the promised land, take my bones and bury them. And in Joshua Chapter 24, it says, and they buried his bones at Shechem. They did. Why? All, what's the key about all these men? Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It's the hope and belief they had in the one true living God that they couldn't see. They lived by faith, not by sight. Amen. And then he goes into verses 23 through 29. The supremacy of our faith. The one true living God is supreme and worthy. He's more valuable than anything else. And, and he's saying, believe in the one true living God that He's supreme. You see, God's sovereignty is unfolding His plan. And so when Moses was born, it says here in the text that we read that he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful. Now every child, every parent thinks their child's beautiful. Right. Every child. The word beautiful doesn't mean what we think it means. To get an insight on what that word beautiful means, you got to go over to Acts. Uh, over in Acts 7, Stephen is the one giving the history of Israel. And he says what beautiful means. It means Beautiful unto God. Special unto God. God had a special purpose for him. So his parents saw that he was specially made to fulfill a purpose for God. So they went against Pharaoh's edict at the risk of their own life. How many of you guys have risked your life to do anything for Jesus? Very few of us have. I know people that have. It, it's a whole different level of faith. And his parents did it because they knew God wanted him to and they put him in the water and then he floats down. Pharaoh's daughter just coincidentally has to be down by the Nile River that day. They're going down there and they say, oh, we know somebody that can take care of him for you if you want and can nurse him, which was his mother. And so the mother actually took Moses back to care for him until he reached about 11 or 12, most people believe. So what do you think she taught him during those 11 or 12 years? She taught him who he was. 
She taught him about the one true living God. So much so that he wanted to be identified with God's people rather than the Egyptians. He knew God had given him a special purpose. Do you know God's given you a special purpose too? You're not here by randomness. Andrew, you thought you were here because John invited you. You're here because God wants you here today for whatever reason to hear this message this day at this time. And God doesn't do anything. There's no randomness with God. Everything has purpose. And so He wants us to look at the life of Moses here in this text and see Moses made very specific choices. Faith is indicated by the choices we make, whether we walk by sight or by faith. And first thing we see in Moses is he chose to pursue walking with God, the one true living God and his people, rather than have the honor of man. And that's right out of the text. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Now, we just read that sometimes and that's like, okay. Do you realize that Moses was part of the most powerful family on the face of the earth at that time by being a grandson to Pharaoh through adoption? He had status. And instead, he looks out and sees the people that are slaves that are having to be doing forced labor with taskmasters whipping their back. And he says, I'm going to go give this up for this that I can't see. That's faith. He had the opportunities of the most powerful family on earth. And he says, no. John 12, 33, Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders and he says, you know what? You love the glory of man more than the glory of God. What about us? John 20, I'm sorry, Job 20 says that the, the fleeting pleasures of life are short. They're short-lived. They're just but for a moment. Just a moment. But our souls are for eternity. And Moses chose to pursue walking with God and his people rather than have the honor of man. But he also chose to pursue walking in God's purity. It goes on to say that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy fleeting pleasures of sin. He chose to pursue God's purity rather than the pleasures of sin. He had access to every pleasure that the world could offer. And he said, no, no, I don't want that. That's not who I am. That's not who I am. I'm a child of the Most High God. Do you guys realize I was talking to a guy and a lady the other day who had just got back from a sex trafficking uh, conference and they talked about the sex trafficking that's taking place. We, we think about it in terms of prostitution or child labor. But there's a lot of sex trafficking that takes place to make pornography. And what they're trying to do now is hit it on the receiver end, the demand end. And they're saying it's such an epidemic because four out of every ten pastors and Christian leaders are struggling with it. That's 40%. 
If 40% of the leaders are struggling with it, what do you think is happening with the body? The people. It's because we walk by sight, not by faith. You don't understand. You don't understand how difficult it is. And we act like our God isn't able to deliver us. He is. He is. When we choose to walk by faith and not by sight. Moses chose to walk with God, the one true living God. He chose to walk in purity. He chose to do that. He could have done whatever he wanted, but he chose to do that. He chose to pursue walking with God's perspective rather than have the possessions of the world. Egypt had all the riches of the world at that time. Moses had access to all that. But what it says, look, in verse 26, it says, he considered the reproach of Christ. He didn't even really know what you and I know about the reproach of Christ at that point. But the writer who's writing this knows, and what he's telling the people he's writing to is, he understood what it meant to take up your cross, deny yourself daily, even though he lived thousands of years before that. He chose that lifestyle rather than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. That's what faith is. Looking to the unseen. Looking what's not there. Guys, we live in such a microwave drive-through generation that if we don't get it right here and now, we're dissatisfied. We have no patience. And we're raising kids that are less patient than we are. I'm watching kids who were on iPads at the age of two in a restaurant who were, they got to have everything right now. Imagine what that's going to be in 25 years for them. And, and we're, not, we're not teaching them to live by faith. We're not teaching them to live by faith in the one true living God. But Moses chose to pursue walking with God's perspective. Matthew 6.33 says what? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things I'll take care of. You worried about your job? Seek God first. You worried about your relationship? Seek God first. You worried about your finances? Seek God first. He takes care of that stuff. First John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. This is the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You can't love them both. And finally, verses 27 through 29, Moses chose to pursue walking obedient to God's commands rather than fear man's punishment or power. Have you known God wanted you to do something and didn't do it because you were afraid of what some person would do? What some person would think? Or they might hurt you? They might try to hurt you? Maybe not physically. It says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. The king and Egypt, Pharaohs, were considered gods. And what did Pharaoh tell Moses? The time I see your face again, you're going to die. You're going to die. And so what Moses does says, you're not going to see my face again, but every firstborn child is going to die. And then God tells Moses, Moses, here's the, here's the plan. 
There's going to be a death angel that goes through and you're going to take a lamb and sacrifice it and cook it and put the blood over your door. Now here's what's interesting about that that you may not know. The lambs were considered one of the idols of Egypt. So it took a great act of faith for a is you know for one of the Jewish people to slay a lamb and put that blood over their door. Not just the blood over the door, but they slayed a lamb which was an idol in the eyes of some of the Egyptians. But he didn't care. He pursued walking obedient to God's commands. He had been warned of Pharaoh's wrath and punishment, but he feared God more. And so, the destroyer of the firstborn didn't touch him. But that night, as the death angel was going through that city, they were sitting in their houses, they were praying, and they were looking to the one true living God. Not by sight. They were trusting. And it says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Why? Because our God is able. He can take care of us. I don't care if somebody's putting a gun up to your head and tells you they're going to kill you. You're not going to die if God doesn't want you to die. He is able. He's able. No man has authority over God. But do we live like that? That's the whole point of what he's saying here. Moses chose to walk with God. He chose to be pure in God. He chose to seek not the possessions of the world, but the possessions of God, which is in eternity. And he chose to not fear man. So, what am I pursuing? And who am I trusting? What am I pursuing? Who am I trusting? When given a choice, are you going to choose the one true living God? Let's pray. Father, there's none like You. Your Word is clear. Your examples throughout the history of Israel are clear. That Your people operate by faith not by sight. And I know that in this room that many of us struggle with walking by sight. We live in a world, Lord, that teaches us to walk by sight and it's so countercultural to walk by faith <clears throat> that oftentimes we fail to do that. And we don't bring glory to your name. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who is not really trusted in the one true living God, they've not trusted in Jesus Christ, they've not placed their faith in Him, that today they would do that. Simply as an act of faith by saying, I need you, Jesus, and I want you to lead me. I want to place my faith in you. Help me to grow in my understanding of who you are. Just in their own words, they would say it right now. I just encourage you to do that if you've never done that if you have done that and you're in the group that is just struggling because we all struggle maybe God's revealed something to you personally this morning or this afternoon I mean and uh, 
Now would be a good time for you to just take inventory and deal with God on it, right where you are, quietness of your own heart. Acknowledge, thank Him for the cross, that it covers all our sin, all our failure, and ask Him for the strength to walk by faith. Father, hear our prayers. We praise you for you are good. And we thank you for your son, Jesus.